This morning, we introduced our theme for the year, which is Christ vision. And the idea of it is trying to see uh, the world through the lens of Christ. Uh, Jesus impacts our lives. He impacts the way we live and breathe and think and, and everything that we do. And he should impact the way that we view the world around us. Meaning we're going to find ourselves in all sorts of situations as we go through life. We're going to find ourselves in some good and some bad and some hard and some easy. We're going to find ourselves in some situations where perhaps the answers are clear and some where it's really difficult to to know what to do. And yet in each one of those, because we have become Christians, we have committed ourselves to viewing them as part of our walk with Christ. We don't have uh, an area of our life that we can go to to retreat from Christianity or to retreat from Jesus. We don't get a vacation away from Christ. Even when we're on vacation, we're viewing the world through Christ, through what Christ would have us do, through what Christ would do in this situation. Um, I think that's one of the the difficult things sometimes, um, and we talked about it a little bit this morning, is because there are some situations where it's rather obvious uh, Jesus addressed either that same thing or something very similar in his life. And so we can approach it the way Jesus did. But then also there are times in our lives where we find ourselves in situations where it's, it's hard to think of a direct parallel. Like, what did Jesus ever actually do this? Or was he in this situation? We know he was tempted in all points as we are. We know that he can relate to us. But sometimes it's not always easy to know what exactly Jesus would do here. And if you find a situation where it doesn't seem like you have a a specific example of something Jesus did, that doesn't mean that, okay, I get to be free from Jesus here and do it however I want to. What it means is you have to attempt as best you can as someone who is being shaped by Scripture and shaped by what you do know about Jesus to try to act in a way that would honor him. Uh, And I think that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 7 when he... You know, Jesus, uh, the topic of like marriage and divorce and all that stuff, Jesus got into those weeds. Uh, Jesus uh, got into the controversy. He gave his answers as to what he thinks the, the proper choice for followers of his ought to be. But then Paul went out and started evangelizing Gentiles and some new situations arose that when you read through like Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about it, he doesn't say anything about this. Like Jesus talks about, uh, answers the question about a man divorcing his wife, but he never gets into the subject of, okay, well, what if you have a Christian who is married to a non-Christian or two non-Christians who are married and then one of them becomes a believer? What do you do in that situation right there? And Paul has to try to give some understanding on uh, what the proper way to, to maneuver through some of these difficult questions because, well, he's out in the world dealing with real-life issues that are facing a church, and he said he doesn't have a specific word from Jesus on it. So he has to do his very best uh, to try to give answers that will uh, be honoring to Jesus and faithful to him, while at the same, same time addressing new needs as they arise. The same thing is true when he begins to talk about uh, the betrothed or, or virgins. He says, I don't have a specific word from Jesus on this, but I'm going to give you my best judgment as someone who by God's word is is found uh, trustworthy. And so I think you'll find situations like that that arise where you've been trying to be cultivated and shaped by Jesus as you do what he says. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation, you're trying to think, all right, what's the best way to honor him here? Um, What would Jesus do is the, you know, I guess I don't hear it as much as as I used to, but it's an important question to ask. Uh, I saw someone say one time, uh, 
well, it shouldn't be what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, but I also think there's going to be situations where you kind of have to ask yourself, what would Jesus do right here? And you try to do it as faithfully as possible. Well, Paul is someone who faced all kinds of situations as he traveled the ancient world bringing the gospel of Jesus to people. And not all of them had easy answers. Not all of them uh, were, were, it was always simple to see the right solution. Uh, but he had to do his very best, and I think by the power of the Spirit, by his relationship with Jesus, by uh, prayer, by the community, he was able to live faithfully in such a way that has uh, impacted the church for thousands of years now. One of the letters that he wrote I think uh, very helpfully um, illustrates what it could look like to put on Christ vision as you face the struggles around you for the gospel when difficulties arise. Uh, that's the, the book of Philippians, although there's quite a few of them. Uh, but we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 uh, this evening, and we're going to look at some situations Paul found himself in in how the way that he addresses those is so fantastically different than you would address them or think about them had he never come into contact with Jesus. Um, He finds himself in prison, and the way that he speaks about his imprisonment is wholly and entirely different than it otherwise would be. Uh, the, The whole, like, attitude with which he approaches it. It's fascinating to see how radically... Christ's vision has changed the way that he sees his circumstances. Um, you can actually see this all the way through the book. He'll, he says quite a few things that you could only say if you're seeing the world anew through Jesus. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In a, in a sense, that's a way of saying, I can endure any hardship this world throws my way because I know that through Jesus, I have something greater. I know that I can overcome any obstacle that Satan throws at me or that people throw at me because I have Christ. So whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, I have Christ, and so I can be content. Whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, I have Christ, and so I can be content. Whether I'm free or whether I'm in prison, I have Christ, and so I can be content. And it's really important, that idea of being in prison, because this is one of those letters that he writes while he is experiencing the loss of freedom that comes with being a prisoner. And throughout this, he will mention a number of times how he rejoices, even in difficult and uh, by far less than ideal circumstances, because he has Jesus. And all of a sudden, seeing the world, seeing his imprisonment, seeing his life, through Jesus, has given him opportunity to rejoice, even when otherwise he has no real reason to. Like, the only reason he can endure these things is because of Jesus. And it turns out that's more than enough for him. And so that's how seeing the world and seeing him circumstances through Jesus has radically shaped him, because he can write some incredible things about his circumstances. He can say, like in Philippians chapter 3, that Even in all the ways he was excelling in his former life, even though all of those have become rubbish and have become lost, he has suffered the loss of everything, he can still uh, rejoice. He can uh, still—his mindset has so radically changed that he just counts those as nothing to him because he's attained something of far greater surpassing value, which is Christ. Again, that—imagine losing everything you've ever worked for— And then finding yourself in prison, if you don't love Jesus, 
if you don't see the world through the lens of what you now have in Jesus, then there is no positive coming back from that. There is, like, Paul can consider those things rubbish because he has something else. And he's viewing the world in a whole new way now. And so he can overcome. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Well, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to see uh, the way that Paul talks about specifically his imprisonment. And a couple of things have happened because of this imprisonment. Uh, We're going to talk about three of them. One is that he has obviously lost his freedom. He can't control where he goes or what he does. His freedom has been taken from him. He is now uh, at the mercy of a Roman jailer. uh, And uh, he has to figure out how to live in these new painful circumstances. Number two... There are people who, because Paul is in prison and they don't like Paul, they are going to see this as an opportunity to, um, in a sense, uh, they're going to try to see this as an opportunity to seize the impact that he had on the church and take it for themselves. So it's like, uh, you know, you have someone who's doing a great work and everyone really appreciates him. Then he goes to prison and the people who don't like him say, I'm going to try to steal his ministry from him. Or I'm going to try to step into his place so that, uh, so that I, can, uh, I can become more popular or I can become more powerful uh, in my authority in the church. And Paul sees people starting to preach in his place with horrible motives. All right, so one, he loses his freedom. Two, people are trying to replace him with horrible motives and cause him distress while he's in prison. And then number three, he doesn't even know if he's going to live or not. So he has to start answering some real questions about the possibility of death that is uh, facing him. I think he, I think he thinks that he's going to live. And in, in, from what we understand, he does end up getting released from this imprisonment. But he's still not certain. And when you're a Roman prisoner, things can turn like that. Uh, and so he doesn't know for sure. And so he has to grapple with, what is my life going to be if I'm freed versus what is my existence going to be if I'm killed? Um, how, do I, how do I face this uncertain future? And in every one of those instances, whether he's talking about his imprisonment, the people who through malice are trying to uh, cause him distress through the preaching of the gospel, or the uncertainty of life and death that lies ahead— He's going to view each of them through the lens of Christ. And in each uh, of those obstacles that he faces, I think we can learn some pretty valuable and important things that perhaps can help us see the world in this new and fresh way. So Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. This is where he's going to talk about his imprisonment. Verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, that, which is a, a kind way of saying my imprisonment, uh, the fact that I am now no longer in control of what I do and where I go and where I preach the gospel, like all of those decisions that I was once making have been stripped from me, and I'm now at the mercy of the prison system. He says that my circumstances, they've turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that in my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ, that has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of my brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. All right, so just taking those verses, what a positive spin to put on being imprisoned. He could be focusing on the fact that I was wanting to go to Spain and preach the gospel there. But now I can't really do that. He could be focused on some of the missed opportunities for the gospel. Uh, Because I'm sure if he really is as gospel-focused as as he seems to be, 
he had huge plans of bringing the message of Christ to others that now he can't do. And so he could be frustrated that even the work of God has been stopped because he's in prison. But that's not the way he views it. The way Paul views his imprisonment is though even though he's imprisoned, the word of God is not. Even though he's in uh, in chains, the gospel is unchained and the gospel is still free. There's a a beautiful passage in 2 Timothy 2.9 where he uses that very language to say that even though he is in prison and in chains, the word of God is free. And the word of God is able to continue to make an impact. So instead of focusing on the, the missed ministry opportunities... He focuses on the new and unexpected ministry opportunities. The fact that through his imprisonment, now even the jailers, the whole Praetorian Guard and other people in the area have come to learn about who he is, about the message that he's proclaiming. The gospel has been able to be furthered, even though he's in prison. That's something to rejoice about. That's, that's a new thing that, that God has done through his imprisonment that Paul didn't even have planned. Paul didn't have that on the radar. Now all of a sudden it's happening. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to tell you guys something. Don't worry about the gospel. It'll keep making an impact. You can lock me away forever and the gospel will still make an impact because God will find a way. God will find a way even through my circumstances to bring about greater faith and to bring about more conversion to Christ. And so him being in prison, yeah, did it shut some doors that Paul may have been thinking about? I bet it did. But did it open some doors that God was thinking about? I think it did. And I think Paul is coming to grips with that. And he's all of a sudden not seeing his imprisonment as just a loss, as just a a denial of his freedom, but rather he's seeing it as opportunity for God's name to reach people who otherwise hadn't heard it and for the name of Christ to reach people who otherwise hadn't heard it. So he mentions that in verse 13. And then in a second, uh, a second benefit of it is not only is the gospel reaching new places and people, that there are some Christians who had already obeyed the gospel, hearing about Paul's sacrifice for the church, they have actually become more emboldened in their faith to preach the gospel. Some people are, are finding out about Paul's imprisonment, and there are probably a number of things that they're thinking. One is that, you know what? If Paul can't continue to go out and reach these places, maybe I can. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to step up and to do more than I, than I was doing. And all of a sudden, Paul says, not only is the door opening to the gospel through my imprisonment to the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, but even other Christians now are starting to go and bring the gospel more boldly than they otherwise would have. So the doors that perhaps Paul had in his mind that he can't go through now, maybe other people can And maybe the church now has more opportunity to spread the gospel because of his imprisonment. And that's a pretty good thing also. You know, just as a, as a minister, I know of, of, uh, there's different mindsets about the best way to, to do ministry in a church and all that. And, and one thing that you do not want to fall into the trap of doing is, No one at the church has to do anything because the minister does everything. And by the way, that's not the way that it is here uh, at all. And that's awesome. And you guys are wonderful for that. But I know of some places where where the minister feels that way or falls into that trap. Where uh, pretty much if anything gets done at the church, people look to him to do it. And then he has to do it. Uh, I know of someone who... uh, had a lot of really good things going, had to step away for a couple months for a, a, a medical issue, came back, and all of a sudden, like, all of the Bible studies that he had started, uh, their, like, Tuesday night studies and the young groups and all these things, everything had just stopped because, because 
he did everything. And, um, and I think that's a, your job, I think, uh, maybe a helpful way to think about it, is to try to be as dependent on as little as possible because other people are, are active in taking ownership and living out the, 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 the ministry, living out the faith of Christ. And I think Paul is saying, I'm imprisoned, so I'm not able to go out and preach the gospel like I once did. But because of my imprisonment, now other people are. And that's even greater. Uh, that's an even better opportunity because you have other people who have now taken up the mantle and are continuing the work. And so Paul is able to look at this imprisonment uh, through, through, an incredible, uh, through an incredible lens to where he can see Jesus as it were, is at work here. And he's not thinking about necessarily how much he enjoys it or doesn't enjoy it, enjoy it, but he's thinking about the fact that through his imprisonment, now other people can hear the gospel who otherwise wouldn't, and other people can share the gospel who otherwise wouldn't. And that's a pretty great thing. Um, it has given courage to people. Another thing those Christians might be thinking, instead of just, hey, Paul can't go preach here now, so I will, they might also be thinking, you know what? If Paul can actually suffer and be imprisoned for the gospel, then surely it matters. Surely I can take it more seriously. I think, I think there's a sense in which persecution can make the reality of what you're doing become all the more real. Like if you could actually, if you know people who have actually really suffered for the gospel and you spend time with those people, changes you. It, it makes it that much more real and important, essential. You know, when it's just easy and your biggest problem is whether or not, uh, you know, at church I get the, my favorite seat or not, you know, then all of a sudden it's not the, it's not the most important thing in the world. It's just kind of something you do. But if we had to get up here and give announcements from time to time that one of our elders was imprisoned this week or one of our members uh, suffered or one of our members was beaten or, or he's in the hospital, for, like all of a sudden it begin to realize that we're doing something that truly matters here and it matters more than even life itself. I think Paul is beginning to realize that while he's imprisoned, other people are thinking, you know what, this thing matters. And I'm going, to get, I'm going to get on board with it. Uh, I'm going to do more than I ever thought possible. And so Paul is seeing a lot of positive effects from what would otherwise be a very negative thing. Secondly, not only does Paul begin to see how um, through his imprisonment God is at work, and he, he can view his imprisonment through uh, his Jesus lens, he can also look at people who are now preaching the gospel, and even those who are doing so with impure motives. He can find ways to praise God because of that. And this is a tough one. Uh, as you keep reading, Paul mentions, you know, in verse 14, which we already saw, he says that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. But then notice verse 15. He qualifies that. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Okay, so he says, now of those people who are now preaching the gospel in my place, uh, and of those who are uh, 
continuing in the, to further the work. Some of them are doing it. Most of them are doing it out of good motives because of love, because they love me, they want to help, they love the gospel, they love Jesus, and they're doing that, and that's wonderful, and that's great, and that's something that's easy to rejoice about. However, there are people who, because of my imprisonment, they're going to preach the gospel now, and he says they do it out of envy and strife. And then he says um, in verse 17, they are doing it out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And that's actually kind of difficult to, I guess, interpret. How is it that Paul being imprisoned, other people are going to cause him distress by preaching the gospel? And they're doing it out of envy and strife and selfish ambition. Their motives aren't pure. So what does that mean? Like, how does Paul going to prison make their motives impure? What's the connection between those two things? And there are a, a lot of thoughts. I've, I've heard some people speculate that maybe um, the more the gospel is preached, the more persecution is going to come. And so they're just doing it so that people will suffer more. Maybe that will include Paul in prison. Uh, to me, I, I was never satisfied with hearing that. It's, like, it's kind of hard to know exactly how preaching the gospel is going to cause him more distress. But I, I do think there's something that makes sense to me, and so it's, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but Paul had quite an impact and influence in the early church uh, through his preaching and teaching the gospel, and you don't have to read the Bible very much to find out that because of that, he had some enemies, um, whether it was uh, the, peop- the, the Judaizers, as they're called in Galatia, who are preaching circumcision, and uh, they are trying to add to the gospel, uh, and so Paul has to combat them, and they might seize this as an opportunity. Hey, Paul's away in prison. We can get our message out however we want to. I don't think that's exactly what's happening here because Paul doesn't seem to have a problem with the content of their message. In Galatians, he had a big problem with the content of the, ma- the message. Here, his primary, his primary problem seems to be the, uh, the motives of their message. Uh, he, he doesn't say they're preaching the wrong thing. He says they're preaching the right thing, but they're doing it from the wrong motives. They're doing it from selfishness, from envy, from selfish ambition, and all of that. Um, but in, in 2 Corinthians... If you were in Bert's class this morning, he talked about uh, those who Paul calls the super apostles. And there are people who basically, um, they disregarded Paul as an apostle, and they wanted to um, bolster their own name and reputation and wisdom. Uh, They wanted to get some wealth. Uh, And and so one of the ways they could do that is now that Paul's out of the picture because he's in prison— they could fill in where he left off. They could charge people money. They could, they could uh, preach in his name, basically, but get his influence. Uh, and so now Paul's influence is going to start fading because people don't even see or hear from him anymore. But these other people can step in there, and they can become the next great preachers of the next great generation. And I, I think that might make some sense. You have people who are basically have been rivals with Paul who are trying to steal his influence, steal the good thoughts that people have about him and try to get it for themselves. They're trying to, to, in essence, replace him. That's how him being in prison could make them preach the gospel more because this is my shot. And it also would be preaching it out of selfish ambition, preaching it from envy, preaching it from uh, impure motives, and preaching it from strife. Like all of those words would make sense uh, with that type of mindset. So basically, I think you have some people who have a personal vendetta against Paul, Uh, and his notoriety within the early church, who are trying to take that for themselves. And it seems that that happens quite a bit uh, in the early church, where you have one person like at the end of Acts chapter 4, 
um, a guy named Joseph, who ends up receiving the, the nickname uh, uh, Son of Encouragement. <laughs> um, uh, bar, uh, what is it? What did you just say? Barnabas. I guess wanted to say Bartholomew. I was like, that's not right. Barnabas. That's a very popular name or a very important name in the Bible. You should never forget it. Um, but uh, but Barnabas uh, sells a field. He ends up becoming uh, receiving that nickname, and word spreads about that. And then you have uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. I was about to say Nadab and Abihu. Uh, you have Ananias and Sapphira, who they begin, uh, I think, trying to imitate that, and they sell a field, but. They want to hold some of the money for themselves. Uh, it is their field. They seem to have the right to do that. But they want to get the notoriety of being overwhelmingly generous. But they want to hang on to the greed of keeping the money. So they lie about how much they sold the field for. They give some of it. They keep some of it. And that way, they get the best of both worlds. They get their money and they get their notoriety. It seems that notoriety, especially in an honor-shame culture like you had in the ancient world... Um, played a large role in the way that people wanted to be viewed. They wanted to be able to, to boast, and they wanted to be able to be people who were respectable and people who held a high position. And that's why Paul often has to try to completely reverse the way that people think about pride and boasting. He's going to boast in his weaknesses, or he's going to boast only in the cross of Christ, because those other things don't matter well, to a lot of other people, even those who became Christians, they did matter. And so here's a chance for someone who cares about reputation, notoriety, and power to be able to replace Paul and uh, to be able to, to get that. So how, Paul, how does Paul feel about that? Well, I doubt he loves the motives. But you know what? He's going to put on his Christ lens. He's going to put on his Christ glasses. He's going to look at the situation and say, you know what? I can't control their motives. But they are preaching the gospel. People are hearing it. People are coming to believe. And that's something to rejoice about. There, there are people in the world today who sometimes might question. I might question whether they're preaching the gospel uh, to, uh, to get rich or preaching the gospel to, uh, to get uh, you know, a, a big name in the church or a good reputation or some of the televangelists. You, know, you might see them and you might think, Hmm. Uh, I think that happens, and I think maybe you might be right about some of their motives. But is there a way that we can look at people, even though we doubt their motives, and think, I'm still happy that people are hearing the name of Jesus. I'm still happy that they're able to reach people who maybe I otherwise couldn't. Is there a way that you can find some joy in that? And I think that's what Paul's doing here. I think he knows that there are people, and he thinks they're scoundrels, and they're preaching from impure motives. They're being selfish. They're trying to cause him distress. They're causing strife. But the gospel is being preached, and I think that matters. And I think that matters even more than my doubts about why they're doing it. And so he can find a way to rejoice in that. You know, I, each of these are hard to find ways to rejoice in. Being in prison, no one wants that. Seeing people who, with impure and envious motives preaching the gospel for their own personal gain you would think that's disgusting how dare they do that but the gospel is being preached and that's not to say that they'll be found innocent on that day they stand before god but it is to say that there might be someone who hears them who becomes a christian who otherwise never would that's something to rejoice about and so paul goes through that and he says yeah some people are preaching the wrong uh, preaching from the wrong motives but i'm still going to find ways to rejoice even in that. And then finally, verses 19 and, uh, through 21, 
And stopping at 21 is a real shame because you could go further and he really developed some of these ideas. Um, but I just want to move on now to some of the uncertainty that he has regarding life and death and how, how without Christ, without viewing the world through Christ, Virtually nothing he's about to say makes sense. (laughs) Nothing about his imprisonment makes sense if Christ wasn't the lens through which he was looking at the world. Nothing about the way he's viewing his enemies that he just mentioned there. People who were preaching that caused him distress makes sense if he wasn't looking at them through the lens of Christ. And he's about to say some things about life and death that I don't think make a lot of sense unless you have full confidence that Christ is with you and is the most important uh, uh, source of life and inspiration and hope and in relationship that you have. And so verse 19, he moves on. He says, yes, I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out from my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So he starts off with confidence. He says, I'm going to rejoice that, uh, that the gospel is being preached And I'm going to rejoice that through your prayers and through the spirit of Jesus, I will be able to be delivered. Granted, he doesn't know that for certain. And as you move on, you you begin to see there are, there is a little bit of hesitation there with that. But then verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, what matters most is that Christ will be exalted through whatever happens to me. If I'm able to be freed, Christ is going to be exalted because I'm going to continue to proclaim him. I'm going to continue to preach. I'm going to continue to spread his name. And so Christ will be exalted there. But if I'm killed, even if in my death, Christ will be exalted through my faithful obedience, even unto death. Christ will be exalted through those who hear of my death and continue to preach the gospel in my stead. Christ will be exalted through uh, having another faithful martyr who is added to the glorious fold in the age to come. Like In all of these ways, Christ will continue to be exalted. Because for Paul, verse 21, only makes sense if you're viewing life and death through the lens of Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain says, if I am killed while I'm imprisoned, I'm not saying necessarily that's the greatest thing in the world, but I can find some gain there. Uh, because for me, you know, life isn't always easy. Uh, I am suffering right now. I am in prison right now. I have been beaten. I have been shipwrecked. I have, Paul can go on and on with his list. And to enter the glorious fold and the rest with Christ and be able to actually be present with my Savior, that's greater than any other blessing this world can offer me. But if I continue to live on, then I continue to experience and to live with and for and through Christ for the church. And even that is a glorious work. So Paul has dedicated his life His life is Christ, and his death is greater because of that. That's a mindset that I think is essential to Paul being able to say at the end of this book, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Because even if you kill me, that's gain. Even if you throw me in prison, you've not imprisoned the gospel. And you've not imprisoned my joy and my my hope and my walk and, and in my relationship with Christ. Even if you beat me, I'm going to consider myself blessed 
to have been thought of as worthy to suffer the same type of fate as Jesus, to to share in those afflictions and beatings and sufferings with him. It's like in all of the ways that Paul thinks about what you could do to him, because he is living with, in, and through Christ, he can overcome anything. He can experience the worst of what you have to offer and come out victorious because he's seeing the world through Christ. This isn't something you can do without Jesus. This isn't something you can see and experience if you're trying to get through this life on your own. Paul is able to do these things, I believe, because he sees Jesus in the world around him. And he sees through, he sees the world around him, his, his experiences, his relationships, his, his future through the lens of Jesus. And that is a mindset that I'm hoping throughout this year we can uh, work to uh, grow and to cultivate uh, in each and every one of us. It won't always be easy. Some experiences will probably be easier than other ones. Some will be uh, much more difficult. But eh, I would also say I don't think it was easy for Paul. I imagine it took years of faithful service and practice before he could say things like this. Um, A lot of prayer, a lot of patience, a lot of uh, strength from the community, uh, and a lot of of actually experiencing some of these things and practicing and getting better. But I believe he has a changed view of the world. And that's what I think would be beneficial, I know for me, uh, and I think for every one of us as Christians, to be able to see the world that way. If there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight, if there's anyone here who would like to see the world afresh through Jesus, if there's anyone here who would like the prayers of the church, we pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.